0: Welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Excellent. Excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really glad you're here. My voice is almost coming back, so hopefully we'll get through. Yeah, it's all good. Praise God. Um If you're a guest, I just hope you find this to be a safe place. Uh, Every week we just come back and we worship this incredible God that has literally changed us from the inside out. We're not following some religion. Literally, we have this relationship. and, And God has touched us and spoke to us. It's incredible, almost impossible to believe until it happens to you. But the God who's created the universe, who spoke us into existence, literally comes into our lives and begins to change us from the inside. We become something totally new. And if the Lord is willing, tomorrow we're going to start a new year. And it's really no different than today. It's just we reset everything January 1. It gives us a chance to sort of be a milestone, to to review, to contemplate, to evaluate, to make plans for next year. It's a chance to have a fresh start. It's a mulligan in a sense. It feels as though for some reason tonight, the slate is wiped clean, the possibilities are now endless, the potential's enticing, and we get to plan something totally new. Have you ever wondered why we love new things? You see, when I grew up, there was nothing better than what somebody called brand spanking new. When something was brand and new, that was the deal. It was new, it caught your attention. Many things were new, not only new, but new and improved. That's even better. New gadgets, new technology, new anything. You gotta love things that are new. I think we love new because our Creator loves new. He wants our experience on earth to be one of constant wonder, constant amazement, constant worship for what God does around us. Just look around, every year there's this cycle of new, isn't there? Every day God blesses us with what's new. He shows us each and every day how much he loves us by making things new. God's all about new. Everything God touches brings life and brings newness. Things that God touches grow. They nurture. They exude creativity. They develop. They improve. They exceed expectations. Always improving. Always exciting us. Full of wonder. Always full of life. Yet, have you noticed that the things that have rejected God get diseased, stop growing, never reach expectations, begin to get worn out, stagnate, need to be replaced, fails, stop improving, stops exciting us, stop brings us wonder, instead it brings us boredom, it withers and eventually it dies. God's all about new. Throughout His Word, He promises us new things. He created us, and we fell in sin. But He promises to make us a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He promises each day that He will pour out His love and mercy on us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He promises us that he'll give us a new mind and a new way of thinking. You see, we spend so much of our time worrying. We worry about the future. Worrying about the future just is thinking about the future without faith. Bitterness is thinking about the past without faith. If you're ever in the process of worry or bitterness, your thoughts just aren't including God. But God says, look, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by a renewal of your mind. Paul said it this way, that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on a new self, created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. He promises that he will restore our health and our spirit from the damages of sin. Look at what Ezekiel says, I'll take you from the nations. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You'll dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Did you notice the pattern in every one of those passages? Let me give them to you again briefly. Put off your old self and be renewed. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The old has passed away, the new has come. You see, before God can bring anything new, he has to remove and destroy that which is old. Why? Because everything we have ever experienced in our lives is tainted by the effect of sin, everything. And God does not say, I'm into improving things. He does not say, I'm into repairing things. He doesn't say, I'm gonna make you a better fallen person. He says, no, no, I'm gonna get rid of that. I'm gonna make you new, completely new. Anything that is tainted by sin, That includes you and me and everything we've ever seen on this earth has to be destroyed and something new, something holy from God, something holy from heaven has to come in and replace it. That's exactly what we've been studying, many of us, at the close of Revelation. Everything has been tainted by sin. It's been destroyed and God is through the process of removing and bringing something new prophet Isaiah thousands of years ago said this, behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. Before new things happen, God says, I'll reveal them to you. It'll be a revelation to you. In our series of revelation, we've watched how God has systematically Restored everything sin took away from us. We're at the end now. We're past the millennial kingdom. A thousand years is coming to a close. The great white throne judgment is completed. Everyone alive at this point has been spiritually reborn and are eternal beings with righteous, redeemed bodies, ready and righteous in Christ. Every person the last rebellion from those who maintain their sinful state during the millennium has been eliminated. The false trinity that some of us, we've been talking about, Satan, the antichrist, and the false prophet, they're in the lake of fire, along with every other human that rejected Jesus. We're at the point at the end of the Bible where every person who remains alive is a spiritual new person, righteous in Christ, and ready for eternity. So, mankind has been made new. The effects of sin have been destroyed. The original earth, the one that we know, the one under the curse of sin still remains. During the millennial kingdom, there's a lot of cool stuff going on on this earth, but it mainly has to do with the fact that Jesus is reigning. The earth itself is still under the same curse that it was under from the garden. So there's one last thing to do. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the promise fulfilled that Isaiah talked about thousands of years ago. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now that's an important answer to questions many of you have asked me during the Revelation series. What will we remember about earth on heaven, in heaven? The answer is nothing. During the millennial kingdom, we'll remember But God says there's a point where there's a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. There's another important point here. At the end of the millennial kingdom, God removes the final effect of sin. We're not going to spend eternity in regret over our sins. God has not only removed them and paid for them and cleansed them and forgot them, he has made us a new person and we too will forget them. You see, sin separated us from God. Now the dwelling place of God is with man. Don't miss this. He did not say the dwelling place of man is with God. It's a key point here. You see, in a sinful world, the best we can hope for is to have some kind of relationship with a holy God. Because of God's holiness and the earth's sinfulness, God will always be there, right? As long as sin is in the picture, the best we can hope for is to be reborn in Christ, have the Holy Spirit dwell in us, and have moments of a connection with a holy God. But God says, look, at this point in human history, you're no longer going to have to try to figure out how to get to me. I'm coming to you. The earth, everything is new and restored. There's no effect of sin anymore. Therefore, I can now dwell with you. God himself will be with them and they will be his people. And sin brought in death. So God says, look, now that there's a new heaven and a new earth, all mankind has been redeemed, death will be no more. Now that tells us that during the millennial kingdom, the humans who, d- who survived the tribulation will live a long time. They'll have children, but eventually they will die. At the end of the millennial kingdom, not anymore. No more death. Everything has been restored. Everything is back to the way it was when God first created man and had a relationship with him. We will walk with God. We will not die. We will not mourn. We'll no longer shed tears of sadness. We'll no longer feel pain. It'll be like it was in the beginning. Sort of. But God says, look, I'm not restoring the garden to earth. I'm not taking you back to the way life was with Adam and Eve. The former things have passed away. I'm doing something new, God says. Something that has never been done before. Something you have never seen before. Something that was foreshadowed in the Garden of Eden. But now... I'm doing something so much greater than anything that has ever been revealed on earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down like a bride adorned for her husband. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. He said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. When God says that, he says, I know you're having a hard time believing this. I know that your picture of heaven and earth is what you've seen in a fallen, sinful world. I know your relationship with me is the way you've related to me in a fallen, sinful world. But you gotta forget that. Because where we're headed, I'm doing something completely new. I'm making all things new. Not some things, not a few things. Everything you've ever seen is passing away, going away, and I'm making all things new. Thank you. Everything that you experience from this point forward will be new. In other words, God says, You're about to live a life of wonder and excitement and revelation about who I am. People say, We'll be bored in heaven. I said, Not unless you're bored just being wowed over and over and over. So at the end of the millennium, everything is new. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven of God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like Jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in this city For its temple is the Lord, God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives us His light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will nations walk, and kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. The gates will never be shut. They'll bring glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. So God brings a new heaven and a new earth a new Jerusalem, a new way of living, a new way of being in his presence. Not in the temple, not behind some curtain, not in the Holy of Holies. God's glory will be evident like the sun. The gates of the city are always open. No one is kept out because everyone is redeemed, righteous, holy, and has direct access to God. Every person that's alive had their name in the book of the Lamb. God is making all things new everything that we know is gone. Then the angel showed me the river, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That tree of life. You know, it's not surprising That before we can get to the end of Revelation, we have to go back to the very beginning of Genesis. The tree of life. We've seen that before, right? Remember, almost everything mentioned in Revelation has previously been mentioned in Scripture. Let's go back to Genesis and look at this. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put man he had formed... And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, here it is, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees. There are two trees in the garden. They're not just in the garden, they're in the middle of the garden. Remember, no word in the Bible is there by accident. God doesn't waste any words. Why were these trees in the middle of the garden? Because the garden represents everything that's great about God, and everything offered to us in our lives. It's us in balance. It's paradise. That garden represents life, and in many ways it represents our potential life. But these two trees, represent the central choice that is in the middle of our lives that would forever foreshadow what's to come, that reveals the choice we have to make. I've spoken over and over about this book, how it's a collection of ancient manuscripts. From beginning to end, it tells a complete and total story. The story of God that we call the Bible is about people who lived in real places, came to us through real history. In its final form, it was written over 1,500 years by more than 40 people. But it is a unified work of literature. In other words, God wrote it, and it's evident because every theme written by all these different people just goes right through the Bible to the very end. Between the first words of Genesis, the last word of Revelation, there is a linear story that God is telling. The main character is God, The conflict is sin, and the theme is redemption. And God says, this book is my inspired word. In other words, God himself in this book tells us, I wrote this book. Now, we can read the book, but we can't ignore the fact that God says it's his book. And the more you study it, the more you see these themes tie together, the more you realize this isn't just some random collection. Now, Satan hates it when we teach on Genesis and Revelation, Because in Genesis, his doom is prophesied, and in Revelation, it becomes a reality. In Genesis, we see the creation of heavens and earth. In Revelation, we see new heaven and new earth. In Genesis, we see the first Adam reigning on earth. In Revelation, we see Jesus, the last Adam reigning in glory. In Genesis, we see an earthly bride brought to the first Adam. In Revelation, we see a heavenly bride brought to the Lord Jesus. In Genesis, we see the beginning of death and a curse. In Revelation, the Savior brings us to a state where there is no more death and there is no more curse. In Genesis, we are driven from God's face in sin. In Revelation, we get to see God's face in glory. In Genesis, Satan appears for the first time. In Revelation, thank God, he appears for the last time. But then there's this tree, right? and it's right there in the middle, and it doesn't really seem to fit into paradise. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What an odd thing to have in paradise. A tree that rather than bringing life, brings knowledge. One tree is a heart thing, springing forth life. This tree seems like a head thing a psyche thing, bringing forth human knowledge, knowledge of evil. That doesn't seem to fit into paradise, does it? A place where everything's perfect and great. (coughs) Excuse me. Because once you know about evil, perfect doesn't seem possible anymore. So at the center of paradise, there's this conflict of purpose. What do we do with these two trees? Well, God had a set of instructions. Lord God took man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And he commanded the man, saying, look, you surely may eat of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life, by the way. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you'll surely die. And we know the rest of the story, right? Adam and Eve chose knowledge, self-sufficiency, and their own way of thinking instead of God's. And it brought sin and death into the garden. And now we've been through the entire book of Revelation. We've seen how God has systematically restored everything. He didn't replace it, he made something new. And in the original garden, there were two problems. One, Satan was there. Second, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there. And for that reason, it really wasn't paradise, was it? But it should have been enough. It should have been enough for us to follow God, to make the choice to obey God. Why are those things in the garden? Because if you have true free will, in order to choose God, you have to have an alternative not to. In other words, I say this all the time, but the reason you know your children or your spouse love you is because they have the choice not to. God put us in the garden with the choice to love him, to do what he wanted us to do, but he also gave us a choice not to, and he gave us free will. So once Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately died spiritually, and they soon would die physically. They were sinners unable to save themselves and destined for eternity away from God to hell. And in their fallen state, they could no longer eat from the tree of life because whoever eats from the tree of life lives forever. So now that they're sinners, if they ate from the tree of life, they would never be able to be restored by God. So what does God do? Then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden to work the ground. He drove out the man east of Eden and placed a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God didn't kick out man out of the garden because he was upset and mad with him, okay? He punished them, yes, but he drove them out of the garden to protect them from this tree, to protect them from eating from the tree of life in a fallen, sinful state. Give them a chance to be restored. And the entire story of the Bible is bringing man back to this tree. But this time things are different. There's no Satan. There's knowledge of good and evil, but every person alive has rejected it. Everyone has been restored in Christ. We're righteous and holy. We have our free will. We've been chosen. And in this new heaven and new earth, there's only one tree now and it's the tree of life. In the middle of a garden, there is a tree of life. Those who eat from this tree will live forever. That's a problem if you're a sinner, but as sinless people, we eat freely from the tree of life. One day, you and I, fully restored, righteous, holy, and eternal in Christ, will eat freely from the tree of life, just like we were supposed to in God's original creation. And it's in the middle of the street of New Jerusalem and on both sides of the street running right down the middle in God's new paradise. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God, the lamb will be in it. Remember that throne we looked at in Revelation 1? The emerald, the jasper, the carnelian, the throne with the rainbow above it. That's gonna be our centerpiece in the new heaven and new earth they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Don't miss the importance of that first statement. No longer will anything be cursed, everything that ever fell under sin has been eliminated. It's all new. Then notice when everything is new, then God can fully dwell with us. He can be in our midst. He can commune with us. His glory will be revealed to us. And from that point forward, everything's new. Nothing fades away. Nothing withers. Nothing deteriorates. Nothing wears out. Nothing dies. When Jesus tells John, I'm making all things new. The verb tense represents a constant, ongoing process. It's as if he's saying, I am going to continually and forever make all things new. Present tense all the time. So in a nutshell, this is the story of the Bible. Between the first words of Genesis and the last words of Revelation, there's a linear story. And now we can see the outcome is because of sin, God has to destroy everything and make all things new. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then Jesus says, and he said to me, it is done it is done. The impact of sin from Revelation is now done. All of God's work is done. It reflects in a very similar way Jesus from the cross saying, it is finished. When Jesus overcame sin, it was as good as done. He conquered evil at that moment when he resurrected. But it had to play out over human history. Okay? And now the Father, Jesus, they're all saying at the end, it is is done. We have restored mankind. We didn't make him new and improved. We made him new. Completely new. It's done. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. And the spirit and the bride says, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Come let the one who's thirsty come and let the one who desires to take water of life without price now it's easy at the end of a book to rush to the end and miss another key point notice two words in this passage without price think how crazy that is we can drink freely from the river of life and eat from the tree of life and it costs us nothing oh look at what it really costs look at what Jesus had to do look at all the things that we've been talking about in Revelation that had to be undone every person that rejected him giving time and time a chance to come back until eventually it's too late everything tainted by sin eventually the earth everything had to be destroyed by God so he could start over new (coughs) excuse me what he had to do to undo everything he knows too well the price he paid and he did it all so you and I could drink freely he foreshadowed this in a conversation with the woman at the well do you remember he said to her everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again whoever drinks of the water that I'm going to give them will never be thirsty again The water that I'm going to give them comes as a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the water he's talking about that runs through the river in the new Jerusalem in the end of time. As we will drink from that, we will never be thirsty again. We'll never want for a connection with God again because he will be our God and we will be his people. And we'll be in perfect relationship. And the woman says, sir, give me that water so that I won't be thirsty again. In addition, Jesus talks about this water at the end of one of the feasts. The feast is all about water. The last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then the final warning of this book I warn everyone who hears the book of the prophecy, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues of this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us. Amen. And the book of Revelation ends. So we come to the end of Revelation. it's been a long time. (laughs) For those that don't know, we started this October 9th, okay? So it's been a while. We also come to the end of the new year. And we come to the end of the storied tradition of some churches. Tonight at midnight, our two churches will officially merge. When the ball drops tonight, you can yell happy new church. <laughs> and you can praise God for including us in all that he's doing. But let me remind you of something that is so critical for us as a church. Let me show you a couple of scriptures and I'm gonna drive home a point. Isaiah 43, 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Don't you perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Jesus said this in Luke, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, what that means is when they would plow and they had an ox and they were digging a hole, I'm not a farmer, I'm a city boy, but I hear this is true. They would look at the point on the horizon to make sure they're going straight. Okay? And if they look back, they would turn. Right? And so what's God saying is, look, once I've called you to something new, once I've called you to plant for me, to do for me, to go into ministry, to do whatever it is, you keep your eye on me. Don't look back at what used to be. Okay? Because if you do, you're going to go into a ditch. Philippians, Paul says this, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead. I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you thinks otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Don't miss that. Those of us who are mature in Christ are called to a new thinking. Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, us, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As our church starts this journey together, we, we have to embrace as a church that God is doing something new. Something brand spanking new. Amen. He didn't bring us together to recreate the glory days of Ashton. He didn't bring us together to recreate remnant. He didn't bring us together to bring back the glory days of the rock. He brought us together and calls us to a new mission, a completely new church and a new destiny. In order to run this race into this new place, we have to forget the old. We must remember not the former things. We have to keep our hand on the plow and not look back. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be proud of what God's done. I'm not saying that history is not important. What I'm saying is if you continually live in the past, you're going to stay there. And God's calling you forward. 1 Corinthians eight. none of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of God imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Once we put our hand on the plow, once we decide to merge two churches, once we decide to come together in mission, our goal, our focus has gotta be on Jesus Christ. Not backwards, not the past. We're to keep our eyes on Jesus and see where he's coming and where he's leading us to. You see, he didn't bring us together to recreate what's already here. Amen. In, a, in a weird way, and I say this with a lot of humility, both of our churches failed. Okay? We both are called to something new. It's not a failure in our hearts. It's that we couldn't, in and of ourselves, reach the potential that God has for us without each other. That's right. It's the same as a marriage. You're a good person, but you're incredible when the right partners match up, you unite together, and you follow God. Right? That's what God's doing in our church. God didn't go through all this trouble just so we could be a new and improved version of some old churches. He doesn't do that. We saw through Scripture from beginning to end, He destroys what's old, He creates what's new. And what he's creating here, God's word says, we can't even imagine it. So whatever you're imagining, you're wrong. <laughs> Just saying, it's what he says. He probably underestimated the potential of what could happen. We kept the name remnant because it seems God is bringing together a remnant of these churches. But we're not here to impose remnant on Ashton. We're not here to continue the traditions of both churches. We're here to follow God. He tells us he's doing a new thing. Amen. So when you start to bring traditions from the past into the present, just be a little bit careful. When we say we have to do it this way because we've, oh, just be careful. We all love the history of our church. It's part of our heritage. We should be proud of what we've done. But we have to leave it. Our church is so personal to us and so loved by us that we tend to gloss over and look back with rose-colored glasses, don't we? Our elders spent several hours this week praying over this campus. We walked through every room. We walked all over the property. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed, God, look, you're doing something new. We don't know what's happened in this building. We don't know what's happened in this place. We want to be clean. We want this to be holy. We don't know what's happened in the history of all of our churches, God. From this moment on, that's past. We ask for forgiveness. We ask that you pour out your spirit on this place, that from now on, everywhere our people step is holy ground for you. So we're gonna follow God. We're gonna leave behind so if you find yourself holding on, it's normal. It's natural. I just want you to keep reciting this verse over and over. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of hold. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Now, this moment, in this moment, it's springing forth. Do you not perceive it? In other words, when you keep going back to the past, you're ignoring what I'm doing, God says. Don't ignore what I'm doing in the present by being in the past. I will make a way for you, he says. So tonight, when the ball drops, shout out, happy new church. (laughs) Forget the past. Focus on Jesus. And let's run this new race with everything we have. Welcome to Remnant. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you do all things new. I thank you that you're not limited by our ability to think, understand, comprehend. I thank you, God, that you really don't need us to do what you do. Just by a spoken word, you can decide what you want done. But you include us in the journey so that we can grow so that we can be wowed by you. So God, I just feel like as we head into this new year, we're just standing on the edge of something new. And it's a new church that all of us are gonna look back on and none of us are gonna imagine. But God, thank you for letting us be here. Thank you for bringing people here, God. And I pray for all the empty seats that there be more people that you bring there would be more people that come that say, I want to be right in the center of anything new that God is doing. So God, from this point forward, our eyes are on you. Help us to remember that the old things are past. And you're a God who restores and brings new. And God, let us not forget that includes us too. You didn't die on that cross and resurrect so that we could be new and improved. You didn't die on that cross so that we would be a cleaned up version of our fallen self. You died on that cross so that we would die in the flesh. And then we would be spiritually new, just like you. Thank you, God, for that sacrifice. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for all that you're doing. We just love you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.